Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Bowles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, and welcome everyone to Glayhold Bowles LLP's Building Insight podcast. My name is Michael Vallow, and I'm here with my partner today, Charlie Powell. And we wanted to discuss a topic that has come up a number of times with our clients when they come to us at first with a a dispute that needs to be arbitrated. And oftentimes their contracts will stipulate that the arbitration is subject to certain institutional rules. Other times, no institutional rules will be specified. But we're often asked, what is really the meaningful difference between arbitrating under the auspices of an institution like the ICC, for example, or the LCIA versus simply conducting an ad hoc arbitration between two parties and and an arbitrator. So that really is what we wanted to chat about today, since it's a topic that seems to be of interest to our clients. And so with that very brief introduction, I'm going to ask Charlie first, at least to at a high level, describe the difference really between ad hoc arbitration and institutional arbitration, if you would. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because as you say, Mike, a lot of the time this is spelled out in the contract and people have decided that they want to use either institutional rules or ad hoc rules. So from the institutional perspective, as you said, there's institutions that have pre-established rules and processes out there, like the ICC or the LCIA. They've set up rules that have been tweaked over the years to try to establish a process by which parties can rely on the rules and have some sort of administrative assistance. So when you use institutional arbitrations, you typically have that administrative assistance and you have the ability to go to somebody to, for instance, appoint your arbitrator or govern the dispute in a way that follows their rules. So in an institutional process, you'll see things like a fee for service. You have to pay a fee to be involved with those institutions. And that fee is usually based on the value of the dispute. Some of the things you get from an institutional process, you get a review of the awards by third parties other than the arbitrators before they're released. As I mentioned, you get established rules. So the rules that you follow under the ICC, for instance, they have a set of rules that have to be applied in every arbitration. The process is also defined as to the exchange of pleadings and how discovery will work and how evidence at an arbitration will go in. And as I mentioned, you get some sort of administrative assistance. There's the administrator of the ICC, for instance, takes the party's fee, sets the fee for the arbitrators and deals with those banking details as they proceed through. Whereas if you look at the contrast, which is an ad hoc arbitration, that's where the parties create their own process. So instead of using pre-established rules, the parties will set up their own rules that will govern the arbitration. It allows for a little bit more flexibility to determine how the dispute is going to be resolved, how the arbitration is going to proceed. In order to have a proper ad hoc, you need some cooperation between the parties to determine that process and an arbitrator that will govern whatever process you agree to. What you don't have typically is any administrative assistance and uh, there's no administrative fees and no review of awards. Now, having said that, in many ad hoc arbitrations that you and I have been involved in, Mike, the arbitrator may have, or the panel arbitrators may have their own administrative assistant who is gathering the documents and providing the parties with the procedural orders that are being made. So they've got some assistance, but it's not governed by the administrative scenarios that they have in an ICC and things like that. You're right, Charlie. I mean, one of the major differences, of course, with an administered arbitration is that the institution handles the logistics, the paperwork, and in particular, the money 
some parties can find it awkward paying retainers directly to the individuals that are ultimately making the decision, the, the individuals that hold their fate in their hands, so to speak. And so the institution often adds that sort of third party independent layer. They control the money, they disperse the money to the arbitrators, and, and it can create at least the impression of a little bit more of a objective process. In the case of the ICC, for example, the other benefit that you often get with institutions, particularly the ICC, is that they have done this before. This is an institution that's been around. Their rules are peer-reviewed periodically and updated based on feedback that they get from their users, and they're essentially tried and tested. The ICC also publishes on a confidential basis by removing party names and other identifiers. They publish awards, which can be hugely beneficial, particularly in construction law, an area we practice. There is a dearth of decisions lately on major and important issues because so much of these disputes are now in the arbitration space and it can often be very helpful while not binding. It can often be helpful in, in particular in international arbitration context to point to awards where decision makers have dealt with similar or the same issues. Certainly that's something we've looked to and, and used in the past that has carried at least some weight with our arbitrators and has been a benefit. The other thing I wanted to add, which I think is an area that more institutions need to focus on as a value add, so to speak, is the appointment of arbitrators. And you, you mentioned this, Charlie, and I wanted to just expand on it a little. In the context of an ad hoc arbitration, if parties can't agree to an arbitrator, they, of course, have recourse to the courts and a court will appoint an arbitrator. In the context of an institution or administered arbitration, it will be the institution that will do that. So the secretariat of the ICC, for example, would appoint your chair. Or if the parties couldn't agree on a single arbitrator, might appoint that single arbitrator. I think there is greater scope for institutions to play a bigger role in this regard. And I think CPR, the Center for Conflict Prevention and Resolution, has a mechanism for this as a matter of fact. And what CPR does, and, and what, what I think I'd like to see more institutions do, is anonymous appointments of arbitrators, particularly when you're dealing with tribunals and you have two party appointed arbitrators who then appoint a chair. No matter how independent an arbitrator is, they tend to be viewed for the duration of the arbitration as one party or another's appointee. And that's a shame. I, I don't think that's that's necessarily how it needs to be. I think it's possible for parties to appoint the arbitrator of their choice in the context of a tribunal. But if it's filtered through an institution like CPR or the ICC, and that institution then appoints the arbitrator without any indication of who appointed them, I think it would add to the credibility of the arbitrators. It would help to bolster the independence and non-biased nature of their appointments. And I think it would go a long way to satisfying users, clients, that their tribunal, all three members of the tribunal, are truly independent in reaching their decisions strictly on the basis of the merits that are laid out before them in the arbitration. So I think that's a role I'd like to see expanded through an institution. Again, it's not something that is exclusively within the power domain of an institution. There's no reason why two parties couldn't jointly appoint party-appointed arbitrators without indicating 
who nominated them. Uh, and I, I think there is scope for that to happen more frequently in arbitration, but it's certainly an area where institutions, I think, have a role to play and could play a, a larger role. So what you're saying, Mike, is what, what you'd like to see instead is the parties, you know, if you're in an institutional arbitration, what you'd like to see or what you think could be valuable is for the parties to tell the ICC who their nominees are. And then the ICC would go out and say, hello, you have been nominated in this arbitration to sit as an arbitrator without the arbitrator knowing who had nominated them. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. So that the parties get the benefit in the context of a tribunal of appointing the arbitrator they want, which in the construction context is hugely important because you're often looking for an arbitrator with subject matter expertise. So you're not just looking for someone who understands the law and can interpret the contract, but often you're looking for someone who has background in the area, who's going to understand what a change order is or have dealt with a a scheduled delay claim. That may be an important interest of yours, and it may be one of the key reasons a client has chosen arbitration over litigation, for example. So control over your party appointee remains a worthwhile benefit of arbitration, but I think the system could be improved if those arbitrators were appointed anonymously. In other words, they, the arbitrator, wasn't aware which party appointed them, because I think that would satisfy the needs of parties to get who they want, but also maintain as much as possible an unbiased panel of arbitrators. Typically, if your contract required you to it's an ad hoc arbitration, where the contract is typically going to say what the dispute resolution mechanism is, and it's going to say you have to arbitrate, and it's going to say you have to arbitrate before a single arbitrator. What normally happens in those scenarios is the two parties, they, they know they've gotten to an arbitration and they uh, try to agree on an arbitrator, and both of them jointly go to the arbitrator and say, we'd like you to arbitrate this dispute. If there's no agreement, then as you said before, typically what happens is the court can make that appointment. What we're talking about here is more in the institutional setting when you've got a tribunal where you've got more than one appointee trying to set it up so it's less of a less known who has appointed who. Yeah, absolutely. You know, turning to the other key differences and call it a benefit if, if you like, but certainly it's a key difference of, of going to an institution as opposed to doing an ad hoc arbitration is that there's a predictability to it. Institutions and institutional rules will have fixed timelines for the issuance of things like requests for arbitration and other basic steps in the process that don't exist at all in the context of an ad hoc arbitration. And even if the parties are still able to vary those rules and vary those timelines, there is an element of predictability associated with the institutional rules that I think some clients like because they know what to expect from the process, as opposed to an ad hoc process where every item on the agenda needs to be agreed by the other side or go to the arbitrator for a decision. And that, depending on the nature of the dispute and the relationship between the parties, frankly, can be hotly contested. And where you've got to reach agreement with the other side on a whole set of procedures and rules for the conduct of your arbitration, that can really derail the process right from the outset as a party uses those unresolved issues as leverage to delay things or whatever the case may be. So, you know, another benefit we hadn't talked about, but is worth mentioning is you can avoid at least some of that in the context of an institutional dispute because you have the predictability of of a tested set of rules that that are already in place, have been used before, and are familiar to the parties.
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, well, you and I have done a few arbitrations here. We've done some that are institutional and some that are ad hoc. And we also, you know, in the ad hoc sense, we have done some ad hoc ones and we know what we like and we know what other parties like. So we can kind of frame the arbitration in a way that we would see would best fit the dispute because that's what's important, right? Is how are you going to make the arbitration process best fit the dispute you actually have? Yes, sometimes institutional rules are going to help that, but there's also cases where you have smaller arbitrations and going to the institution and paying the big fee for that may not be what a client is looking for, may not be the best way to proceed. And that's why I guess moving on now to talk a little bit about, you know, okay, you've got a contract that says you have to arbitrate and you've got some rules about appointing your arbitrator. And it's basically silent as to, well, what's going to happen? What is that arbitration going to look like? And that's where an ad hoc arbitration process comes in. So maybe now we can discuss a little bit more about, you know, the flexibility with ad hoc and what we look for or what the parties look for in typical construction disputes as to kind of steps in the proceeding and what procedures we would like to see or what procedures we typically see in a construction dispute in an ad hoc arbitration. So maybe I'll open it up to you to let me know what you think are some of the highlights. I think that's right. I think the greatest advantage of ad hoc arbitrations is that it allows you and the parties to tailor the process to the dispute. And as you said, Charlie, not every dispute justifies three arbitrators, massive ICC fees. Some are smaller in nature, not just in quantum, but in the nature of of the issues in dispute. And so with an ad hoc arbitration, you have a chance to create a process in theory that should best suit the dispute in terms of efficiency and other things. Maybe if there isn't a huge amount of money in dispute and it's not a a hugely complex process, you don't need as much of the typical documentary production process that you might otherwise get in a full institutional arbitration, those sorts of things. So the scope to create and tailor the process is hugely advantageous if used properly. And you have experienced counsel who can guide the process because they know what works and what doesn't work. And that's really what it comes down to. Pitfalls of ad hoc arbitration in that context are, of course, you know, if if you've got counsel or arbitrators who don't have the experience with process, oftentimes what you'll find is lawyers falling back on what they're used to. And so they turn to the rules of court or litigation processes that they're familiar with. And you wind up with extensive discoveries and and oral examinations and stuff like that, that's that's a lost opportunity, if you ask me, because arbitration is expressly not litigation. And so falling back to those sorts of familiar procedures and routines, I think, is often a waste of time and money. In the contract, you've got the requirement that the dispute be arbitrated, and that has been called an agreement to arbitrate. But one thing, you know, in an ad hoc arbitration, as I mentioned, you've got the provision that says you have to arbitrate your dispute and you have to appoint one arbitrator or a panel of arbitrators or whatever it may be. But then you have to turn your mind to, okay, what's this arbitration going to look like? What rules am I going to apply? What are the, what, what standards am I going to make the arbitrator follow? And, you know, we've done it a couple different ways. One is to get the arbitrator involved at the outset and provide us with a procedural order as to how this procedure is going to do. Or the alternative is to reach out to opposing counsel and have an agreement to arbitrate that sets out the procedure and the rules, which is then just adopted by the arbitrator because the arbitrator is going to go along with what the parties are looking for typically. So we've done it both ways, but maybe you can go into a little bit more detail on that, Mike. 
the scope of detail required to set out the process in any ad hoc arbitration is going to depend to some extent at least on the arbitration agreement that's in the contract sometimes you see a contract that may not stipulate institutional administration but it it often will stipulate institutional rules the adr of canada rules for example or the unstral rules so i've seen contracts that get down to stipulating whether or not discoveries will take place. So there's often a starting point within the contract itself to look at, but then of course it is, you know, between the parties amongst themselves to decide how prescriptive they're going to be in terms of the process. There are certain things you have to have as part of any arbitration agreement or first procedural order. And that of course is a schedule. What deliverables are you going to have? Are you going to have regular court-style pleadings or detailed pleadings supported by reliance documents? Is your evidence going to go by way of witness statement or viva voce testimony at the hearing? Expert reports. Uh, Will there be expert hot tubbing? Those types of rules are often the subject of first procedural orders or, as you said, Charlie, subsequent agreements between the parties that are then taken to the arbitrator. But, you know, there's other considerations, too, that parties often have to think about. In terms of evidence, for example, you know, when you have an ad hoc arbitration, one of the benefits is that you can adopt certain rules or elect to be guided by certain rules. So, for example, we've had arbitrations, Charlie, as you'll remember, where the first procedural order will provide or the arbitration agreement will provide that while the strict rules of evidence don't apply, the IBA protocol for the taking of evidence may apply or that the arbitrator agrees to be guided by the IBA protocol. So they're not binding, but they're they're at least intended to be guiding. So again, providing, if not certainty, then at least predictability to the parties, for the parties, so that when they're in the arbitration, undergoing the process, they have handles that they can hold on to when it comes to bringing applications or posing certain steps or documents, if you know what I mean. And, and those can be hugely beneficial And they're often overlooked by parties when they set up an ad hoc arbitration. They do too little by way of prescription and guidance in that first procedural order. And it leaves the parties often grasping around for things to hold on to when they're when they oppose certain steps by the other side. And and the same is true for the arbitrator, of course. Yeah. And and being able to set all that up in a standalone arbitration agreement so everybody knows what they're getting into is is pretty key in an ad hoc arbitration, I'd say. You mentioned there whether you're going to have detailed pleadings or not. So just to, you know, kind of give a little bit of background on that, I guess in the institutional rules, the ICC, for instance, normally what happens is under a contract in the tiered dispute resolution, in order to get to the arbitration step, somebody has to have filed a notice of arbitration say, I want these disputes to go to arbitration and deliver that to the other party. Now, in the ICC and the institutional rules, once you're into that, then you have to prepare detailed pleadings. And that will set out exactly what the dispute is about. Now, if you're not in institutional rules and you're just doing an ad hoc, it it can be enough just to stand on the notice of arbitration and the response to it. And then you wouldn't have detailed pleadings. Now, in some instances, that may be worthwhile. In other instances, with complex disputes, you may want to have detailed pleadings as they're seen. Uh, in, in my experience, detailed pleadings help in every case because the notice of arbitration or the notice to arbitrate really just sets out the claims that have already gone through the tiered dispute resolution and don't have the details you need to properly either advance your case or defend the case that's being made against you. 
Yeah, I agree with you there, Charlie. I, I think that is one of the key differences, isn't it, in our arbitration, and particularly administered arbitration, for example, through the ICC, is there is a lot more upfront work to get your case on its feet than there would be in the litigation context because you have to do those detailed pleadings, which are required to be backstopped by your alliance documents. And what that allows you to do is, yes, there's significantly more upfront costs, but it forces each party to reckon with their claims and ensure that they are as credible and legitimate as they can be. And it, of course, is incredibly helpful in guiding the the witness evidence that you're going to prepare, the witness evidence that you're going to need to prepare to defend the claim being made against you, as you say, and in guiding what experts you might need in the dispute that you're going to have. Oftentimes, without those detailed pleadings, it can be difficult to discern just exactly what kind of expert you might need. So even in ad hoc arbitration context, we've we have sort of as a rule adopted the detailed pleading as a key step for us in the process. Charlie, we've spent quite a bit of time really talking about the differences in ad hoc and institutional arbitrations as it relates really to starting an arbitration and getting an arbitration off the ground. But there are, of course, differences to the arbitration, whether it's institutional or ad hoc, in respect of the end of the arbitration, isn't there? Yeah, of course there is. I mean, we talked a little bit about the start, about the, uh, the award and the release of the award. And under the institutional rules, it gets reviewed by the institution before it's released. In other instances, it's just the arbitrator releasing his award when he's done with it, when the arbitrator can finalize his award and get it out to the parties. That's right. It's actually that timeline that I think in cases can be so beneficial because, of, of course, one of the main benefits, one of the reasons parties are so keen to pay for arbitration is because it is intended anyway to be more efficient, faster to your result than traditional litigation where your dispute might meander through the courts for for many years. And one of the benefits I have found in the past is that in an administered dispute, for example, again, under the ICC, where there's a a six-month timeline for the issuance of, of an award, while the arbitrator is allowed to apply to the ICC for extensions to that period of time for the delivery of the award, they have to actively justify to the ICC on a periodic basis why they need more time. In other words, the institution does the work of the parties to hold the arbitrator's feet to the fire, which is a very difficult thing for parties to do in, in an ad hoc arbitration. As you can imagine, it's it's awkward indeed to send an email to your sole arbitrator or even your tribunal to say, dear Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, it's been eight months since our hearing concluded. We'd like our award, please. This is, after all, the person or persons that are ultimately deciding the merits of your case. You, you don't want to do anything that might put them off. So the institution playing that sort of third-party role, running that interference and taking on those awkward jobs, as I said earlier, for example, taking on money, paying out money to the arbitrators and pushing arbitrators, prompting arbitrators to get their awards out is actually, in my view, a real value add of these institutions because it provides accountability to the arbitrator that would be very difficult for parties themselves to ensure, if I can put it that way. Yeah, I think that's true. I think what we've done in the, in the past in our ad hoc arbitrations as well is in an effort to try to try to deal with that is when you're setting up the schedule for the arbitration, one of the items in that schedule includes release of the award. And we've had the ability to talk to arbitrators about that to say, 
the award will be released within three months or six months of the end of the hearing. And that's in that schedule. Now, we've been lucky. Traders have always, in our experience, have always complied with that. We have yet to be involved with an arbitration ourselves where the arbitrators have not got the award out promptly and done their best to do that. But there are ways you can deal with that in the ad hoc. But I agree with you that under the institutional rules, there's much more accountability to that for sure. Well, Charlie, I think that's probably all the time we've got for today, but I'm hopeful that this little discussion about uh, ad hoc versus institutional arbitrations has been helpful to our listeners. Obviously, anyone out there who wants to reach out, continue this conversation with either Charlie or I, please feel free to do so. Uh, get all of our contact information on our website, www.glayholt.com. We are here to answer any questions you might have related to arbitration and construction law. I want to thank our student, Mitchell, for assisting in the recording of this podcast and all his work in editing it. That's it for us. Signing off. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.